I'll tell you a story. Some five years ago, for whatever reason I wasn't here, I was walking alone in Greenwich Village in New York, and there was a bookstore with a little sign, like right now, just outside, reading with Rawi Hajj. I walked right inside. Now, bookstores in New York, they're not really like Alia's. They can be very informal, very impersonal, people going in and out, it's crowded, but it doesn't have the magic of this kind of bookstore. I walked downstairs, there were some maybe 15 people seated, and sort of against the wall was Rawi, about to read parts of Beirut Hellfire Society. And this is right when I was starting my podcast. And I was trying to think back then who would be the right guest to launch the podcast. I wanted it to be a storyteller, not a politician, not an MP. This is before October 17. This is before I spoke to Najat Saliba six times. <laughs> <laughs> Long before. And a few names came to mind. The first was Ziad Dwayri. I went to Paris and did an episode there in his recording studio. Another voice long ago uh, was Robert Fisk, and he passed away. He said yes, but he passed away. Amin Malouf said no, for the right reason, I think. In an email, he sent a reply saying, I don't want to cause more harm to Lebanon. So I let it go. But I grew some balls and waited for Rawi to finish reading Beirut Hellfire Society. I was a bit too eager. I walked right up to him and I said, Rawi, I'd like you to be on the podcast. He said, who the hell are you? <laughs> <laughs> I said, I am Rani Shata. He's like, who? yeah, who are you? And I'm like, ah, that's right, I should explain. Rawi politely said no, five years ago, for the right reasons. I think back then, two things were happening. First, you were going to write about the subject we're going to discuss tonight. So maybe it was premature to go down that road. And the other, I think, was, well, we didn't really know each other. There wasn't comfort built in. Over the last five years, I've gotten to know Rawi virtually. We've traded a few emails back and forth. I think once or twice on Facebook. I'm now friends with your hidden Instagram profile. <laughs> and I think three weeks ago, you dropped me a line and you said, I'm in Beirut. Let's get together. So I went back to my initial thought right away without being too excited. <laughs> so I said, you know, Ravi, that's great. We'll get together, but let's do an episode. And Ravi said, yes. That's my long way of introducing one of my favorite authors. Let's give a round of applause to Rawi Hajj. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners and viewers like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And to stay updated with video releases, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Thanks for listening, and thanks for watching.
I'm Rani Shatar, and this is the Beirut Banyan. This is an honor for me. And actually, it's the kind of episode I could retire the podcast with. No. But I won't. <laughs> Please don't. And I wanted to cater this episode to anyone that has not written, has not read De Niro's Game, who has not read Beirut Hellfire Society. So we're going to keep it wide enough without making it too book-oriented or detail-oriented. I think Rawi... Uh, before we started, before we really discussed the episode long ago, in my heart, I think I wanted to get to know you better, away from being an author, more about your, your earlier life in a Lebanon I don't know, especially the breakdown during the Civil War and the years you spent living here. You were living in Rmir, just down the street. Yeah. And this is your turf. I'm an imposter. I show up every week pretending like I'm from this neighborhood. I'm not. Oh, different eras. Different era. And that's exactly why I wanted to talk to you. So before we get into De Niro's game, what took you to writing that book? Before we get into Bassem and George, and before we get into really the Greek tragedy that is Beirut Hellfire Society, allow me to start with a reference. Was it 10,000 bombs and the radio, no, the was, batteries was 10,000 yeah, years? Yeah, there's that incantation of 10,000. Yeah, I was laying on a blue sofa. What feels like 10,000 episodes on my side. <laughs> <laughs> Let's begin long before that number and your childhood growing up in this neighborhood. Um, well, it's good to be here. Thank you. Um, Yes, I grew up uh, up the stairs, uh, what we called at the time uh, Jara stairs. Uh, my father had a store up on Jaitewi. Um He sold uh, clothing. Um, and I uh, grew up in that neighborhood. I hang out a lot in my father's store. Uh, my father's store was right facing Bet uh, Khatib. Shocked. Um, so I hang out a great deal at my father's store. Mainly I used to help him uh, uh, at times doing some delivery or, uh, but my father was a reader. He was a big reader. And I think he uh, missed his call in life. Um, four kids, he ended up opening a small, a small uh, uh, clothing store, and he was terrible at it. He was not a merchant. He would sit there, read all day, and then invite a few of these local erudites, and they would smoke cigar in the store. And that was a store for um, ladies' clothing. So you can imagine the barrage of fume, how obstructing the business. Um, 
but it was my mother uh, who would come chase this man out. And within two hours, she would sell what my father would sell in a week. <laughs> um, yes, patriarchy, but I think he was excused because <laughs> he was a reader. He was an avid reader. Um, and he could still recite you know, Arabic poetry and he was taught in, I think, in the French schools. Uh, so he was a Francophile as well. Um, we were lower middle class, depending on the phase. Uh, um, and I went to suggest Hekmi School, which has its own characteristics. A, uh, in terms of tradition, you know, uh, we always took pride that Gibran was there for a couple of years. Uh, it was the kind of school uh, that we were taught simultaneously French. But Hekmi took pride mm. in the fact that whoever graduated from our school perfect the English language, I mean the Arabic language. Mm. Um, whoever graduated from there, unlike, I would say, Chanville, Urfrer, who were our nemesis, uh, Hekmi was known for its Balira uh, in Arabic. Yeah. Um, now, you want me to move to the war days? You know, not, not yet. Hmm. And I kind of... I should, I should tell the audience before going back to the subject. Hmm. Ravi and I had a bet three weeks ago. Mm-hmm. He watches the podcast regularly. Mm-hmm. He said, you need to stop drinking Diet Pepsi. So, I said, on the condition you stop smoking your cigarello, mm-hmm. he brought his cigarello with him. <laughs> so we both fail at that. <laughs> I forgot to mention that up front. I don't want to get to the war yet because you're a child in the pre-war years. And a lot of your writing on Lebanon talks about the corruption of society or the corruptive aspects that can take a fragile place and turn it into a nightmare. You were old enough to have some memories of the pre-war years. Mm -hmm. If I did my research right, born in 1964. Mm -hmm. So you have childhood memories of pre-April 1975. Yeah, good ones. Good ones. Mm -hmm. And you're growing up in a working class part of Beirut, but I'm guessing you're seeing a slow degeneration pre-war. I want to talk about that. Mm-hmm. the kind of corruptiveness you saw pre-war, or if any of that is there in memory of watching the slide. Corruptiveness pre-war? Pre-war. Pre-war, I didn't detect any corruptness. I think uh, it was a happy childhood. Uh, we went to the mountains in the summer, uh, and the neighborhood, for me, was like a village because two of my grandmothers were there, I had three of my aunts. The school was very close by and everyone knew each other. And anytime you go on the street, there was plenty of kids to play with. Mm. Uh, We lived very close to Jesuit Taxi, who they tried to destroy by the way, Uh, turn it into a garage, some criminal, whatever. Um, 
And there was a bura, what we call, with two sycamore trees, big sycamore trees. That's where we played. Mm-hmm. Uh, till someone had the idea of cutting the trees and build this monstrosity that 30... And he built, and he sold every floor six times. It was um, it was a total corruption as well. So this building ended up empty, unoccupied, uh, with somebody who built it in a very confined space. If you look at the space, you don't think that here you can rise thirty um, um, floors. Anyway, it was part of the war, and that was the start of the corruption. Uh, that's when the corrupts were taking the opportunity of that chaos, mm. uh, that militia rule. Um, that's, I think, that was the seed of what we're sowing today. Um, I think he left Brazil. I remember him. He was always wearing big suits. I mean, that's the kid, fular, respectable. Mm. It, it's. A charlatan, basically. So he blocked the view, and the rest of our lives we lived with this wall facing our balcony. A- anyway, I'm, I'm taking too many tangents, but no, the life country. is full of uh, tangents. Um, what else I was going to say? You asked me about... You know, I, I, the reason I want to touch on this is, and I'll say this, this is my understanding. It may not be yours. It's not until more recently that there's a storytelling sympathy to this part of Beirut. Mm. And I think some storytellers have gone down that road. Mm. Maybe it's still not fully embraced. The mm. Nero's game is not about that only, but there is a, there's an emphasis on this part of Beirut. And I, if I could think of someone, I, I apologize for the cheesy example, but Ziad Dwayri did it with West Beirut, mm. that innocence robbed in 1975, and then hell emerges. He rectifies that one-sided story, if you will, with the insult later, yeah. which is about Kerem Zaytun. Yeah. He's not a writer. He's a filmmaker. I'll take liberty in saying that I think you do try to humanize and remove the emphasis that there's one side right and one side wrong by honing in on Ashrafi. Yeah, I think, well, the New Year's game was written after 10 years. I left in 84, I wrote it in 2000 and, oh, 20 years, 2005. And within these 20 years, there's major personal growth. Uh, I believe that at the time when I wrote it and I read something, I was reading um, uh, a small, tiny book by Edward Said on the intellectual. And a phrase struck me, it says, an intellectual or, uh, you know, uh, a true intellectual should criticize his own community when it commits something wrong. And on that premises, I thought I will... um, criticize certain elements hmm. uh, yeah. and and to be fair and not to be sectarian but there's a long tradition of criticism within 
I don't know what we call it, Christian, Ashrafi, what do you want me to call it? Any label I give it now, it's a sectarian, it's a sectarian label. Uh, but if you look at this side, let's say, um, there's quite, there's quite a lot of literature, a lot of movies who are mm. critical. There is this, um, there are many mm. who are critical of what happened here and the relation of here to the elsewhere. Mm. Um, I will venture and say it was not met on the left side. Only maybe Dwayri did that. Yeah. Maybe uh, because of conviction, maybe there's a theological dimension to this. Christianity is about confession. <laughs> Crucifixion is a kind of a defeat that you expect the resurrection. I'm not. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm forced to, to talk on these terms because this country is divided on, on religious basis, whether we like it or not. There's a strong um, uh, um, I won't say the, uh, yeah, there's strong religious presence in this country. Um, and unfortunately, I think uh, uh, that is becoming more and more our our separate entities mm. uh, or identities. In any case, I I I wrote it as a part of a reconciliation. I wrote it to condemn a massacre that was not justified. You can't go on a camp and massacre three thousand people. I also wrote it as a part of a collective, wider movement that was taking place in, in Lebanon. We all know, and this I said it a long time ago, that in the absence of a reconciliation, it was the artists, the filmmakers, uh, the writers who took it upon ourselves to document what happened. And interestingly enough, I think uh, for the most part, it took a fictional form because we also felt that a, there's no conclusion. We also felt that mm. it's still disputed what happened. We also felt that maybe we felt that the safest way of presenting it, distancing ourselves. Uh, but nevertheless, I, I think with all what happened, um, uh, especially in the visual art, that that renaissance that happened with Walid Rad, Akram Zatari, Lam Yajrej, well, unfortunately, I don't know, they're probably not even known here. They're a big celebrity elsewhere, except here, maybe. Uh, I think almost like an implicit collective effort to, to tell all our stories, to document things. Um... um the Atlas group of Walid Rad is brilliant in terms of reference to documentation, documenting the world in a fictitious way. And mm -hmm. I think it influenced many, many of us. I know that you're not Bassam entirely, maybe parts of you are, maybe not. I know that Tade Nwayri is not Ziad Dwayri. Although it is his brother. I don't know who Tariq Dwayri is. What does he do? Tariq Dwayri is the fictional 
character in West Beirut. Oh, right, right. Who's the actually little kid, uh, the little kid yeah. who is the younger brother of Ziad Dwayri. So it's his brother filming. A per- I know that this is autofiction, but I can't help but associate you in De Niro's game. And that's why I'd like to untangle yeah, it yeah. a bit. Some of these stories are everyone's stories. Yeah. I mean, um, um, some of these stories, they, they were told everywhere and as jokes. Um, you know, the, 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 the Centreville, you know, the Green Line, that mythology that there are, you know, houses still working the zaytuni mythology yeah. that we heard from our father the, um these are kind of some of them are almost folkloric some of them are stories that we heard from our grandfathers and and we kind of integrated them sometime in the war uh sceneries like ziad did mm. creating this fictitious prostitute house in the yeah. middle of, i thought it was brilliant and funny um but me i think uh, uh me and ziad will live the same the same era um the same war i think you're both roughly the same age on yeah. different sides of beirut as yeah. the conflict emerges yeah um allow me to go down this road as much as i can with you you're young you're 11 when the civil war starts so as much as you can, take me back to you being a child, an adolescent, surviving the early years of the Civil War. Um, I'm in the process of writing my memoir, so I'll be selective. I won't tell the whole stories. Um, it's been five years, Rebe. You need to finish this memoir. <laughs> <laughs> the same excuse well, you gave me it's a, it's a festive life it's it's a very eventful life uh, you know i you know i've been writing and it's not done yes um, let's make another bet if it's not done in the next five years i'll do the voiceover for it in english if it's not done like five years i want to make sure you're not tricking me into something i'll i'll unleash my agent on you um uh yes what was i oh 11 years old uh, the first memory is my mother putting us under the table under the dining table that's a memory and then uh, uh, my family was kind of divided some of them uh had an affiliation with Aumi Suri, mm. that was my mother's side. My father was a Christian f- from here. I don't know what to label him. Um, and some member of my family had to leave, some members, or come back under you know, different circumstances. Um, so the family was divided. Early, early war, I was, there were debates in the family, uh, vicious debates. Uh, and that's what I remember, those vicious debates. Um, not violent, but almost mm. very political debate, political. 
Um, so at home. At home, yeah. And the divide between Almi, Suri, SSNP, and I'm going to guess more Kate'ib or yeah. Priyawit. Yeah, Priyawit, yeah. Uh, that kind of division at home was really just shouting matches. At yeah. Di- yeah. So, yeah. That, so really, I mean, pre-war, was that kind of tension felt at home? Or is yeah. that... Oh, I mean, uh, when the Palestinian issue started, mm. it started before Ayn Rumeini. Yeah. There was yeah. a whole history that we tend to forget. Um, um, that period, that period, yeah. Okay. And then when the war started, each each one took sides. Some my uncle, though they were uh, part of the Aumiyi, mm. uh, stayed here. Uh, and I think I don't. I still don't know if they changed their political views as a ruse to stay here, or they were they were convictions. I don't know. So these are almost. And they died. I don't. So now oh. I, I never got to ask them that question. Um, I see. Uh, they all passed away now. Um, but I remember my mother uh, early days uh, speaking against the Israelis. Hmm. that they're here to invade us and stuff. I think she was pro-Palestinian at the time. With time, I think she, I don't know what she became. She changed or not. She never discussed politics much. Uh, My father did. Um, So the shouting matches were with your mom's... My mother's family against my father's family. So the uncles or... People would show up at home and then there would yeah, be these dinners, you know, yeah. lunches. Mm. Yeah. Um, the early days. And then, you know, I mean, the early days here. Um, I think in every revolution, in every civil war, there's a. Uh, these, these guys are great, they're texting. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So should we call him out on that? It's the teacher in me. Yeah. Because I teach. Malik, I don't allow a you. student to text in my class. <laughs> I feel like I'm in my class. Um, um, Big fan. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. Obviously. <laughs> uh, I was going to say, oh, the early days. I, You know, I think the early days, I'll tell you how the atmosphere here was. I think uh, in all fairness, I think the early days of the Civil War, um, uh, it was a certain class of Christian who went on the street, the educated, highly educated doctors, you know, and at the time the Christian didn't have much weaponry. They were losing the war. Uh, so they the f- were the first months of the civil war. Yeah, yeah. I think before the Syrian intervention. Yeah. Um, they had shotguns, like hunting guns. And I remember seeing them all hiding behind walls in my, around my father's store. Pitiful, really. Um, Do you call and, this a militia? <laughs> um, and then I recall when the Syrian entered this area. 
Um, so that's less than a year into the civil war where the Syrians are entering. The Syrian entered as a peace. Yeah. Uh, a part of the Arab League yeah. peace initiative to, initially, end, to, end, to end yeah. the war. Uh, uh, go, mm? Yeah, initially more or less on the same, not the same team, but the same get Arafat out alongside Kata'ib. It wasn't, I don't think it was, maybe it was that, I don't know. But I, I think it was deeper than that. Mm. I think uh, Hafiz al-Assad was, I think we all know that Hafiz al-Assad never liked Arafat and Arafat never liked Hafiz al-Assad. And they were all, uh, Hafiz al-Assad's main concern is that if Arafat wins, uh, this becomes yeah. uh, a, sect, a different sect. Yeah. Uh, it becomes a Sunni state. Uh, that's my own analysis or whatever I read. Even I think Fisk said it. That was the conflict. That was the main conflict. And that was the main reason why Syria entered. Um, and when Syria entered, the biggest clashes happened between the Syrians and the Palestinians. Were you still here in 1976? Yeah, when they entered here, I was still here. I was a kid. They established uh, checkpoints everywhere. And we used to be terrified. Uh, passing by them. I think the uprising started, I think the uprising against the Syrians started here. I'm, I'm telling as it is, this is not prejudiced or whatever. I'm taking risks here, my analysis, but, but that's the history. You ask me about the histories that I lived and I'm telling you, and I lived a different era, I think from most people here. Uh, when the Syrian entered here, the biggest conflict was about women. They would stop women and harass women. And it was the 70s. The women here were all revealing. It was the disco time. And uh, there were many incidents, which shows that it's, even though the cosma it cosmetically looks European, but it's still, you're still dealing with an Oriental man from the Middle East who's, you know, you're stepping into a, a very dangerous terrain. Yeah. And I'm sorry to interrupt you, yeah. Ravi, but I mean, we're, I guess, 17 years apart in age, if I did the math right. Uh, even my childhood, you'd hear that sort of language as well. Like yes, in, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's exclusive to. Yeah. I don't know what happened over there. I cannot. I don't. I don't tell. I don't know what was the reaction. Oh, I think the same uh, kind of nervousness, uneasiness. uneasiness. But in that, that that language, I remember that too from the '90s. Right. Sort of, they're going to harass women. I remember even a cousin of mine uh, putting a dress over her shorts. Yeah. When we'd cross the checkpoint in the north. Yeah. It's gone now. It's on the old road in Enfi. Everybody would hide what they were wearing at the beach. On what? At the Syrian checkpoint. At uh, the Syrian checkpoint. But check. it's that kind of memory too that... Yeah, I'm, I'm not saying the other militia didn't, no, no. obviously. Yeah. But I, I'm saying um, that, was, that was the beginning of a conflict. Yeah. That was the beginning of a revolt, I think, to a certain extent. But it's a small community. Everybody talks and... And that was the initial start of a resentment. Plus, 
you know, people start disappearing, etc. We know, we know the story. So, um, as you're a teenager in those years, when the Syrians enter and they don't leave, they stay in different ways. They don't fully occupy until you're gone in 1990. But the 1970s, late 70s, can you bring to life a bit of your, maybe your classmates, your friends, the draw maybe to be part of the war? Oh, um, or, or even for that matter, the draw to, and I know this goes later into your work, but having to make a choice between letting the war take over you personally or rejecting it altogether. Mm. So mm. maybe your own life in those terms. Well, um, I, uh, the school I went to was um, a lower middle class, and many of the students joined, yeah. J joined the war? Yeah. 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 The thing about the war is, I think there were here also, there were waves of coup d'etat. Uh, the rich goes away, the poor stays, and eventually... Uh, they take power. There's always some kind of class mobility. Mm. And, and since my school was not Chonville or Frere, you know, it was like somewhere in the middle. So many um, of, uh, yeah, some, some kids, I, I think it was everywhere. Some kids came to school with guns, etc. cetera. Uh, and many died. Yeah, we had, you know, but it was the... The older generation than me. I was mm. in the seventies. I was in. Um, yeah, I. What else? And then I think um, there was program to uh, the wet came to the schools and they chose our school. Uh, as a program to train people and it was the kind of like f uh, forced uh, what do you call it uh, uh, soldier when you, um, um and conscription yeah. thank you very much i should know this um and my school was chosen so they put us in trucks and they sent us somewhere in the mountains and we went through military training as were, 15 years old were you one of those yeah. sent yeah and then they send us on a, on the front to the Syrians. And, uh -huh. Yeah. Uh, um, that was part of a Bashir Ismail program to, I, I think he was aiming to have maybe 50,000 soldiers or something. So this, this is know. early 80s, I would guess. Uh, I think early 80s, yeah. As the Lebanese forces are emerging. Yes. Yeah, that was the program. And that was after, I think, the unification yeah. when everything, everyone else was eliminated. It was a cons yes. constellation of power. So you're 16. I think even 15. Yeah. 15, when that begins. Yeah. And even maybe, I can't remember what year was that. You know. I'm sorry for this silly question, but are you, I mean, what is it? Do you, do you go to the mountains and train and then come back to school? Yeah, you come back to school. No, no, you go for a month and then you come back to school. Yeah, I think it was the whole summer or something. I can't remember, it's vague. Summer course in the mountains. Yeah, and and I, I met an artist in Germany who went to Pshara school, uh, you know, Kalit Pshara. 
and he said to me, you look familiar. I said, you oh, look God. familiar. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, he's the last, he's the most peaceful artist guy. You know. Anyway, so that, that was a period, yeah. Um, and then what else? Uh, and then you had uh, the hundred days of bombing. Yeah. Where the Syrians bombed the whole region here for a hundred days that, you know, uh, um, toward the, after I think my father sent us to Cyprus, my aunt's company relocated there. She, she was working in an insurance company and I lived in Cyprus for a year. That was my first encounter with people from the West. That was when I picked up a little bit of English. And what's fascinating about this is that we were Lebanese and Arabs from all, all over, all denominations, all religions. We became best friends. And that was, I think, my first encounters with Muslims, believe it or not. I mean, really on a personal basis. And we had it like a posse and we had motorcycles. We were picking up girls and hang out every night. And we had fights with big United Nation guys. <laughs> there was a big United Nation presence in Cyprus because of the divide of the Turkish. And they were always drunk and uh, and they would come and, and, you know, try to pick up our sisters or the sister of a friend and would go on them like they're big, big guys. I mean, like really big guys. But we were like little, you know, National Geographic, little African dogs, you know, kind of like. <laughs> we surround them and, and beat Confuse them. Confuse them and then yeah, they would, yeah. Yeah, I had cousins who went to jail. I was beaten, I was, you know, uh, another friend. Uh, what I think is remarkable is that everything you've just talked about is before you're 18. Yeah. So this, I mean... That's that's the start. That's the beginning. That's the beginning. That's nothing. Before Cyprus, before you do eventually leave the country, uh, I can always remove this from the episode if you don't want it in. It's something you mentioned a few weeks ago. I was sitting here with Tom Young, a painter, and behind us was a giant painting of the Holiday Inn. Yeah, you were talking about the Holiday Inn. Talking about the Holiday Inn, and you sort of just mentioned that you had friends who fought. They were not friends. They were older than me, people in the neighborhood. Yeah. Seven, I think. Yeah. They fought, and that was a famous battle, the Holiday Inn. It was a very contested building, because I guess it was the one of the highest. And who, whoever takes that building have a position to snipe on the other side. Um, it was exchanged many times. Sometimes the Kathayib, sometimes the left coalition of Palestinians, Murabitun, etc. Uh, towards the end, I think uh, there were seven Christian fighters who were stuck between, sandwiched between two. I don't know how that happened. Between, uh, uh, I think, two uh, faction, other faction, non-Christian faction, or probably Christian communist, who knows, mm. you know. 
and but stuck between meaning there's three floors and there and the floor yeah. in between yeah no and you mentioned that when you went there you sensed suicide that's what you said yeah i didn't say you said that that's true yeah actually those sevens threw themselves from committed suicide because they ran out of ammunition and they were surrounded and they were zooming on them uh they threw themselves uh i knew couples uh one was our neighbor who had a boxer dog always he would walk with his dog and then after he died it was his father who would see his father walking the dog so i kind of mentioned something similar in you know you take reality and you totally transform it we're liars you know like fellini would say fellini says i'm a liar i think all oh, it's a prerequisite to be uh untruthful uh, when you're writing when you're writing um but yeah you ask me that's the incident yeah many people died i mean i mean my father had a store and i remember there was a period where every every day two three funerals and you know in the funeral tradition is you have to close the yeah. and there was a point because my father had a store 90% of the merchandise was black he only carried black black clothing black stockings and at one point he couldn't even it, it was a, so much demand on black like you can find black anymore i'm going to speculate that had you been born a few years earlier you would have ended up trapped here permanently because what you describe in your writing and also the way you're delivering this small chapter of your childhood it feels like it's all pointing in that direction and towards. then towards letting the war completely take you over right and somehow maybe it's a family decision maybe it's your mom's eagerness she makes that decision that does not happen in west beirut where the woman the mother dies at the end of the story and the father and son are left mourning alone your mom family makes a huge sacrifice and suddenly you're away oh i came back i came back here and then i start working at the port secretly without my parents knowing sorry so you went to cyprus i went to cyprus came back you came back by boat oh to lebanon yes i see i came back by boat and i start working that's that's the hardcore fan right there who knows the exact <laughs> that's impressive yeah i don't know how for much. a year i don't know <laughs> Thank I, you. i hope you still be a fan after this yeah <laughs> the the thing with lebanon is you always make enemy nobody's satisfied right. from from uh, from you know there's yeah. determinism about about stories and anyway um i came back i was working secretly without my parents knowing at the poor saving money under the snipers because the port was always sniping we had to run go to um and do the job and come back running from the sniper and i i saved some money and i escaped to cyprus again again you went back 
I I I I wanted to live on the beach. I want it. I want it. I want it. I got the bug. I uh, yeah. I went. What year is that when you come back and then leave? Is it eighty two? Before maybe before before nineteen eighty two. Yeah, this I have problem with my memoir. <laughs> Getting the date straight, I have to figure it out. Maybe we can know. ask Samira when is the, the date exactly. <laughs> So, so the reason I'm trying to get some dates right, because you tell me if this is wrong. The Lebanese forces are in control of the port pre-1982. Yeah, then it's pre-1892. Pre-1982. Yeah. Okay. And you're running back and forth between the port and Ermir? Yeah. Making just enough money. Yeah. Saving the money. Saving the money. But what are 17, 16? You're still young. Yeah. 17 maybe 17 okay Can, i have to make calculations so school i'm very confused about dates yep. yeah there's no school i'm guessing that stretch You're, i used to quit school you quit school yeah I mean, uh, yeah i quit school yeah i uh i used to skip school yeah and went back uh, and i went back i remember once because we used to take these small boats you can yeah very small boats fishing boats uh, I remember once we took a boat full of watermelons <laughs> and we ate so much watermelons to <laughs> we would break the watermelon and just eat heart of the watermelon and 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 birds following the boats because we were anyway sceneries um and I went back to Cyprus was there any other return before you end up yeah in- then I came back here and that's when my parents decided that I should leave. And that's 84 or so? 84. In 1984. Yes. And I left to New York, straight to New York. And allow me to ask this without overstepping. The rich, uh, there's a rhythm in the way you write. There's echoes of, I think, dialect. Of what? Of the Lebanese dialect when you write in English. Mm-hmm. There is musicality. Um, obviously, f- storytelling is there, but it's also, you're very, very good at bringing what seems like vivid memory back to life in a way that you're reimagining years later, like you said earlier. Is all of that from that stretch of time? Meaning the things that maybe the dates are fuzzy now, but the trauma is not so fuzzy. No, I remember everything. When I read I remember many things about that period. When I first read Beirut Hellfire Society, I wasn't sure if this is all made up or not, because there is a you no, Beirut Fire Society have a function. It's more of an artistic function. It's an artistic function. I think I thought there's enough written about the civil Lebanese civil war in terms of uh, realistic depiction. De Niro's game is not Beirut Hellfire Society. I, Beirut Hellfire Society is injected with the fantastical, the poetic, the mythological. This is when I become, I think... Uh, more of a literary writer. 
as somebody who's a complete amateur at this stuff, I would argue slightly otherwise in that. <laughs> I think, and maybe I heard you say this somewhere, maybe I'm imagining it, I don't know. You felt sort of like an outcast. Not outcast the way we talk about it in other countries. An outcast here. And that well, some people are born outcast. Born outcast. I, I believe some people are, they come to this world and they're always resentful uh, of this injustice. Uh, who is it? Uh, Ibn, uh, Ibn Ma, uh, uh, who is that uh, uh, very, uh, um, was it Abu Nuwaz? Who, uh, uh, I don't know. Okay, here, I'm, I'm embarrassing myself now, but th th this very gloomy Arab poet. Hmm. Uh, Thank you. Right. Um, he's allowed to text now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's allowed, you're, you're forgiven now. <laughs> I actually, you get an A. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah I mean, I, I believe... Some people are, are, are born with that. Uh, but could I make it a slightly more Lebanese with my understanding? Please do. It's for you, the Lebanese audience here. For the Lebanese let's, audience. Let's accommodate them. It's a word that is now thrown out. It's tossed around all the time. People identify this way. Maybe they don't feel it always, but the word is comfortable now. You can say you're secular. In Lebanon in 2023, no one would think twice about thinking you're an outcast you're actually you could be even the majority sometimes here, no. here. yeah and this i i read i don't know i don't know if that's true i think uh, we have to be careful not to project the alia bubble on the rest of the country you are absolutely right this is a bubble this is the alia bubble i like uh, that uh, sorry i mean it's a very I small this place. i i'm here because i appreciate what you guys are doing and i think this is a form of cultural resistance this is Beirut for me. Well, let's give um, a round of applause to William, wherever he is. I don't know if, where is he? That gentleman, I hope I'm not embarrassing you, William. That gentleman delayed his flight to the UK to be here tonight. No kidding. Yeah. So that's credit to we, William. We had a conversation before. Yeah, and, I, met, uh, I met William, yeah. Please check out the wine bar behind. <laughs> 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 yeah. So uh, secular, not in a, not in a uh, meaningless way. I meant more in a complete agnost. I think Hellfire Society celebrates that kind of individual. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, and that's why I wanted to ask before you leave for good in 1984. Did you feel that way here? Did I feel that? Oh, was I secular? Secular in that in that definition of the term, not secular as in I'm a secular uh, yeah, yeah. whatever. Yeah, I understand no. what you're saying. Yeah. I, 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 um, Did you feel out of place as a kid? Was I pious? Yeah, I love Jesus mm. uh, to a certain extent. I still admire the man. Um, I think uh, he's a reformer, and I'm a sucker for anything that. Uh, take their roots. I think ultimately we want to go talk theology. Um, 
I admire certain things about Christianity, uh, and I keep it. I mean, there's certain things that are um, extraordinary. Few sentences, you know. Um, but am I with the church? No, I think I think the histories of all religions are full of violence. Um, uh, am I a believer? No, I'm not a believer. No longer. But as a kid, yeah, I grew up in a very conservative, very Christian Maronite uh, community. Uh, am I against that particular community? No, I'm not. I think there's a lot of, especially lately, stereotypes. Hmm. There's a lot of discrimination against this community, and there's a lot of sim simplistic uh, uh, conclusions that shouldn't be done at on any community. I think things are much more complex. Uh, I'm not being an apologist. You know my writing. I'm very hard on what happened. But if there is something characteristic of that particular community, I think it produced more people who contested that orthodoxy hmm. um, than any other community maybe in the Middle East. You have Rihani, you have uh, Gibran, you have a whole series of thinkers and poets who were against that uh, the church hegemony on the population. Mm. There were socialist movements, and and there were other influences. So I think I think we should all calm down a bit all calm down and start looking at all our commonalities in this country i, I think i think um i think we should take breathing a bit and instead of um uh you know contributing to this divisive discourse we should start, um, yeah, focusing on on all the things we did. You know, I think we're a great people. I I have to say it at the risk of sounding nationalistic, but I met a very known Australian Vietnamese writer, so he's familiar with the Lebanese community in Australia. He said to me, "You guys are like us." I said, "Yes." He said. You guys are tough like us. I said, what do you mean? He said, we beat the Chinese. We beat the French. We beat the Americans. We beat everybody. And we're a small country. So did you. And it's true. If you look at it as a collective, we all fought our own battles. At the end, maybe, maybe there's something common that we all, in a sense, we want some autonomy and, 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 and dignity for this place. I think each community, it seems, did its its contribution um, within that divide. So the Vietnamese were divided, but if you look at it as a as a holistic effort, maybe subconsciously we want that autonomy. Um, maybe that's that's a point of commonality we should start working on. Um, I appreciate the willingness to step back and apply no judgment 
on any community in this country, where it feels right, where it's anxious, how it expresses itself, sometimes how it refuses to adjust. And we'll save some time to identity towards the end of the episode, because that is something I'd like to touch on with you. And I like you already hinted at certain phrases that are being discussed now, maybe even system overhaul. But we'll save that to a bit later. Um, you're, by the way, you're very generous. You're with more giving. interested in me now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in my biography. Well, you have five more years. <laughs> Fast forward a bit. You're not in Cyprus. You're not in Ashrafi. You're in New York. Mm. And you're in New York. You're still very young, but you're finding your way through a completely different story. Mm. I spent some time in New York, and people like to refer to that city as cosmopolitan. I don't know. I think Beirut is cosmopolitan. At I, the time it was. New York was cosmopolitan. New York was cosmopolitan. I know. And now it became a big corporate uh, place after, uh, anyway, yeah. I know, I know tidbits. Hmm? I don't, I know snippets. I don't know the full story. I know that you join a brother who lets you live in his dorm until you get busted. Oh, wow. Did I say that? Yeah, that's right. He was a resident advisor for some dorm hall. He that's would give right. you a pass. That's right. Let you sleep there. Yeah, the university initially thought you were his lover. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and then you said no, I'm his, his brother, and they kick you out. But then suddenly you're alone in Brooklyn, alone to a degree. And I think today it's so much easier to be in those shoes with your iPhone. You can be connected to every damn event happening here. Mm. There's no detachment. In the 1980s, mm. you couldn't make a phone call without hassle. Mm. You'd have to write letters back to Lebanon or reach Santrad here and hope, if you're lucky, they can connect you. You're detached. You're what? Detached. Right. At least from Lebanon to a degree. All right. To a big degree. And that kind of rapid readjustment and how you make your way, I think there's a lot of rich texture there, and I'd like to explore it with you. You work in manual labor. You take photography seriously. At times, you're a taxi driver. You eventually settle in Montreal, nearly a decade later. But that window of time where you're finding your way through a tough city, I'd like to explore that and how that shaped your writing technique later. Mm. And I think it's okay to suggest that there's a lot of tools you're picking up quickly. Yeah. And that could also include the English language. Yeah. Let alone dealing with a bunch of interesting characters, not all upstanding people but you're surviving you're surviving here you're surviving there and a few years later you're writing a masterpiece so let's go down that road everything you picked up 
yeah, I, I have my brother there. We uh, stayed together for a while, and uh, and then he got married, and uh, obviously I had to separate. But we were both struggling financially. Uh, uh, it was my aunt actually who finances financed our departure. Hmm. Uh, uh, I arrived there and yeah, that story is funny. I stayed in the dorm. I was in Brooklyn. Uh, and then they realized that I'm an intruder. They kicked me out. Yes. Uh, but then I worked, I worked at uh, a store in Brooklyn that was owned uh, by a Lebanese Jewish man from what is what used to be uh, he was in love with Sabah he used to sing Sabah and I met him through another you know just by coincidence someone I was looking for a job and uh, and you know he was a Lebanese he ate Lebanese he there's no difference about you know that's why I think religiosity does not define you sometimes or religions and and he taught me we worked he had a store in a in a caribbean neighborhood mm. so everyone from haiti jamaica african-american as well and uh, we sold knickknacks that was what he sold he, he sold beads uh, porcelain elephants the best seller was a winking jesus it's kind of hologram um vases whatever hmm. but he told me how to bargain because it was still you know that era where no prices no malls no you know it's still like a bazaar so and also part of my job was to go on the, on a ladder and watch the customer make sure make sure <laughs> yeah. nobody shoplifting right. i mean there's so many stories about this and so i was I, fought, I chased a woman who stole something once and I got beaten up by her on the bus. I, uh, <laughs> I caught a woman who was stealing, shoplifting, and she said to me, I asked her to open her bag. She said to me, if I open my bag, I curse you. I said, you curse me. Uh, she proceeded to do some voodoo work on me. Uh, then the other employees has to take me to their home and I, you know, uh, de-voodoo me, whatever that. <laughs> so I also participated in this chicken and all, uh, slaughtered chicken and all. I mean, like really voodoo ceremony. Uh, maybe that's why I'm here now. Uh, maybe that's what my luck comes from. Um, then I left that job worked as a shoe salesman sorry uh, what did she try to steal i can't remember like an ashtray or something i can't i can't remember so it's really the ashtray that brought you here <laughs> yeah probably the ashtray yeah <laughs> it's all the plan i mean you know uh, you know so many stories really so many stories when you live in so many places uh, but i became part of that community mm. i danced with them i i danced i picked up the Creole language. I smoked ganja with the Jamaicans. I I lived it all. I had girlfriends who were from the community and everybody knew me in the neighborhood. 
Um, and I was vicious. I left Lebanon. I was fearless. I mean, fearless. I remember... I think I was mad. I remember at the dorm, a guy who played basketball in the basketball team at the university, we kind of used to play pool and ask me to lend him money. And I did, I said, but you pay me back. And he wouldn't pay me back. And one day and I went, I took the stick, the billiard stick. I think I coming the war from the war. And, and I said, you give me the money, I'm gonna, you give me the money, I'm gonna smash you. <laughs> And he was with three of his friends. They start laughing. And he actually gave me the money. And he said to me, you're cool. And I said, don't call me cool. I didn't know what cool meant. I thought it was another offense. <laughs> uh, that's the 80s. You know, I, I grew up on um, Prince, Shaka Khan, the Boombox. I lived it all in Brooklyn. Um, Where does the interest in two things in photography come from mm. and maybe the initial stage of trying out the written word mm. how that does that transition yeah um does that begin in new york in that phase when you're really not in lebanon anymore i mean everything you've described right now is its own story it could also be maybe a nightmare sometimes too i don't think it's always a rosy departure from this country. If anything, you wrote a sequel. Sorry to say that. Maybe that's not the right word. A companion novel to De Niro's game called Cockroach, which is the other side of the story. Yeah. But where does storytelling come from? Is it back to your father? And you mentioned earlier that... Yeah, we were all readers in the family. So I think I mastered the sense of literature. My father read literature. The sense of literature from... Yeah, my father read literature. And and to give credit to the priests, um, at an early age, we were taught by priests and Jesuits, and we were exposed, deeply exposed to the French culture. Mm. I read Rousseau at an age of 12. I read Les Confessions of Rousseau at an age of 12. Little he knew, uh, and I read Sartre, at certain point, we were obliged to read them. And I was a reader, it was little they knew that they were also corrupting us because we were reading secular atheist writers. Yeah. But I think still, to their credit, they didn't mind. Um, you have to give them credit, you know. Um, the exposure we had and the exposure to Arabic poetry, we had to stand up in class, memorize Al-Mutanabbi, uh, you know, um, so this accusation that this community is, you know, colonial subject, etc. It's it's a it's a bit of a projection, a contribution to you know a contribution to the Arabic language is tremendous. I think it's lazy. It's more than it's lazy. It's 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 cheap stereotypes. Yep. I think uh, well, that's that's a problem. There's so many stereotypes about. Um, so you have, you have, sorry to interrupt, you, you have the recital, which is never fun, memorizing poetry as a kid. Yeah. It's not nearly as engaging as reading, let's say. And you know what? We had, also we were, we were marked on the delivery. Hmm. You had to gesticulate. If you gesticulate, you secure more points. <laughs> it was the rhythm too. 
Uh, it is. It is true. I mean, you, you, it's not sufficient to go and be monotone. You had to give it some rhythm. And I think that eventually helped me in my writing because yeah. there's the rhythmic um, that I think, I think in the literary scene and the outside literary scene, that would give attention to the writing. It's also the style. I apologize for the comparison. Maybe it's an unflattering one to you. Uh, the only time I've read stories about Lebanon in English that match your craft is Fuad Ajameh. I never read him. I, isn't he a nonfiction writer? He's a nonfiction writer, but he has a way of writing hmm. that seems to be very close to the way you write. Uh, Maybe he was influenced by me. I think <laughs> no, he, I know, I know he's much older. I'm just kidding. Uh, no, it's the ashtray that he uh, took from that shop. <laughs> no, but the voodoo. He, he became yeah. persona non grata hmm. for many years. Hmm. He wrote a book, it's called The Arab Predicament. It's yeah, it was a, he was critical. I used to watch him in New York. At yeah, he became a, an American more than Lebanese over yeah. time. I think he self-identified as American and not Lebanese later in life. I think you can be both. You can be many exactly. things. I mean, it's not, a, it's think, not either or. I, mean, I think he was given a, an unfair critique from here. I, I tell you the truth. I don't know much about his writing. Um, but the reason yeah. I'm mentioning him is mm -hmm. because his posthumous book Mm. There's references to school years mm. with poetry, mm. and he took that with him. Yeah. And he eventually wrote nonfiction mm. with that in mind. Mm. So there is something there in that English can be written in a way that feels like Beirut. Yeah. So that. Well, that, that's you have to give credit also to um, the plasticity of, of English language. It's, yeah. a, it's a language that accepts many influences. It's, uh, it's a language that is not rigid. Unlike the French where there are, you know, I think, uh, well, now it's changing. But in the um, 70s and 80s in Beirut, Civil mm -hmm. War Beirut, I'm going to guess that English was not a third language. You still stuck to French or Arabic. I was exposed to English, Exposure, bit, right. but I learned the English when I went to Cyprus. So the English begins in Cyprus, yeah. and then in New York it's on overdrive. Yeah. Well, New York, yeah. Uh, yeah. The early days I went on a student visa, but I defaulted, and that's how it became paperless. And I had to, you know, fend for myself and et cetera. But, uh, but I, I, there was no internet. There was like you're saying, yeah. the technology was not there. And I wanted to, and I would buy the New York Times every day. And with my heart, you know, trying to find out something about what's happening in Lebanon. A car bomb, what's happening. And sometimes there are things, sometimes they're not. And like you said, the isolation was more severe because uh, uh, communication was expensive. Yeah. Uh, you had to call the central, but what we used to do is go to Times Square and buy stolen numbers from the Nigerians. <laughs> That's how we called Lebanon and the Senegalese. And I used to talk to them in French. I remember one 
Stalin is a what he used to say. Uh, I used to buy from the same person, right? Mr. Tay. Do you want debt colonial, mon ami? Debt colonial, it's like a colonial debt. Uh, I thought it was funny. Uh, is photography happening as a hobby in those years? Is that no photography happened? Actually, started here. I see. My cousin's not here. I thought he'd come, but uh, we got into photography somehow. And one day, it's a short story that I wrote in my last book. We start chasing bombs. We were, we wanted, really wanted to take photos of, of a bomb before it falls. We wanted to get the f- image of a bomb suspended in the air. Madness, total madness. And we used to uh, just take my father's car and speed in the neighborhood, waiting for, because, you know, there's, we call it Wazzy, because mm, yeah. you can hear when, uh, when it goes, there's a whistle. Yeah. I called actually a short story, The Whistle. And looking, trying to find, to actually take the bomb. I think it was probably a suicidal tendency, maybe. I, I don't know. Uh, but it could, it could also be what kids do to make yeah, their way maybe, through. Yeah, maybe I'm giving too much credit for myself. Being suicidal. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, maybe that's what kids do. I don't know. I don't know what was the... I think we wanted an image of a bomb in the air. Yeah. Did you get that image? No. No. Well, then you wouldn't be here, I guess, if you got that image. Yeah. Precisely. So you have a daring tendency to do pretty much everything. I mean, you're chasing people who rob the store. You, uh, you're beating up people twice your size with pool sticks. I, I never beat them. I mean, sorry, you're, I threatened you're threatening. Them. You're right. Yeah. Um, this is becoming like a donkey shot de novel now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, you have, well, you, you said fearlessness and you already have fearlessness, machismo. I don't know what it was. And you're able to take a photo. You have some training on the ground here by sheer, yeah, by sheer coincidence that there's a story happening and yeah. you're chasing it. But then you're a little older and you're in New York. Yeah, I met the Lebanese photographer. His name is Nabil. I can't remember his last name. And I was looking for jobs. Um, and I, he, he said, why don't you come and help me with uh, the darkroom? He had a studio, he was doing photography. I helped him with the darkroom. And eventually I think I processed photos mm. and I fell in love with the fell in love with the with the surface of the image uh and and i fell in love actually with the craft too mm. um i i i like being in a room alone in the dark uh and i like i like working with my hands i still do um uh, yeah that's one thing I don't like about my being an author is the, I miss working with my hands, the craft. I appreciate craft, I, I think. Uh, you eventually study 
photography in Montreal. Eventually, the move to, when I moved to Montreal, I went straight to uh, a photography school, technical photography school. Right. Which they teach you technique and they, you, they teach you how to become basically a commercial photographer. So I had a very good basic techniques. And I worked as a wedding photographer. I have many stories, but I won't bore you with more stories. Um, it's the worst kind of photography. I mean, the kitsch can kill you, actually. I think kitsch would assassinate you. Um, I did mafia weddings. I did all kind of weddings. I did yeah. mafia weddings. Mafia weddings. I did all kind of weddings. I did. I did. Yeah. A anyway, I. Uh, that's another book. I think it's a comical book, you know. Um, and uh, and then I decided, I, I decided to go to university mm. and study photography as arts. And I think that where my exposure, my intellectual exposure started, if I may say, uh, I have any intellectual uh, streaks in me. That's when I started reading. Um, I read Foucault, I, I, Derrida, I read on fine arts. That's what my progressive thoughts started shaping. Uh, so you're catching up on education too. Mm. There's a stretch of time you're not studying. No. And you're making ends meet in Brooklyn. I was, but I was always a reader. I was always so a you're reader. always reading always on the reading. way. On the way, yeah. So then I'll fast forward a bit. Mm. You have technical training in a mm. profession, mafia, weddings, and otherwise. Yeah. You're able... You, you have to be, you know, you can't... Yeah. There's you, one chance. You, you can't forget the film. In the, I, used, I was shooting film. You can't forget the film, putting the film in the camera if you're shooting a mafia wedding. Yeah. And, and, and you can't forget the grandmother, for instance. <laughs> she has to be photographed. That's amazing. Yes. To stereotype, yes. Yeah. And I remember this guy. I mean, let's, let's have some fun now. <laughs> sure, sure. Looking at me like this. And I'm photographing big mafia guy smoking cigar and looking at me like this and i started to sweat a bit and he said to me let me ask you something i said yes sir he said are you one of those muslimic people that's <laughs> <laughs> funny um i said no actually sir i'm catholic comme les chrétiens. yeah yeah. He, he did, yeah that's right that's right it's all this confusion of identities right i mean jihad azur les chrétiens that's that's part of it too these these names that you don't think about abroad well, but in know, lebanon you take it as yeah that's you know, it's like a you know a guy in an african-american whose name is o'neill you know i right. mean it's yeah. all these names are what are names you know yeah um, just a bit to the mic though if you could yeah yeah um um yeah we're going through many anecdotes i think the academic community won't take me seriously anymore um i think they'll take you more seriously because of this and and i re actually i don't i don't care um um uh, what was I? Where was I? Let, let me let me try to transition to what eventually makes you bury your thoughts 
not bury your thoughts, bury your, isolate yourself for one month and write De Niro's game. I'm trying right. to get to yeah. the, or maybe the, the foundation for that book in yeah. Montreal. What I, when I read it the first time, I would have never imagined that this is a book written under a month. But it, yeah. it, it, now knowing that, it feels like you're, it's almost a volca volcano erupts. And a lot of what you were forgetting, maybe it's what we go through here and all the time. There's a lot of bad memories we don't process. And here. Here. Right. And I currently. think currently, and if you stretch it out right. over decades and generations, um, it takes takes 20 years for De Niro's game to come out of you. Yeah. So photography, an appreciation for literature, a lot of reading, a lot of intellectual reading, and a profession in Montreal that may not be your initial passion, but it's getting you places, it's giving you, a, it's giving you money, you can survive abroad, and it feels like out of nowhere you emerge on the literary scene. Yeah. So that quick transition, what exactly happens? It's a mystery to me. Um, is it true that you were a taxi driver when you were writing yeah. De Niro's game? Yeah, I was a taxi driver. I, um, well, I was, after finishing art school, I wanted to be uh, a photographer. Uh, it was a, it was failed commercial endeavor. Uh, so I start producing arts. Uh, there was a name, there was a lady, a Syrian lady by, by the name of Aida Kawuk, who passed away, who decided to do a big exhibition on Arab Canadians in the Museum of Civilizations in Canada, in Ottawa at the time. Um, she asked me to take portraits of all the artists. I traveled all over the country and I set them up and took photos. And then when I came back with the results, she said to me, can you write something about your experience? Like a lot. I wrote something kind of fictitious, funny. She liked it. She put it, I think, in some catalog or some brochure, who knows? I don't know where it went. And she held my hand. She was an older lady. She, wanted, she held my hand. She said to me, you know, you have a voice. Uh, I said, yeah, well, I do. Not, not a good one, but she said to me, you should write. Uh, and I believed her. I went and started writing short stories. Uh, De Niro's Game was initially a short story that I kept on writing for a month. Uh, I would drive taxi at night, wake up in between, mm. write in the morning. I was just writing to write. I, I don't know. I... And then I gave it to John Asfour, who was a poet. Uh, translator in Canada who translated from Arabic to English. Actually, he translated the Mahout, uh, all Adonis, um, mm. all that period poets, and he published a book about it early in the 70s. He, uh, he lost his sight in 1952 in the first civil war, 1952, here in Lebanon. 58. 58 I'm sorry. Yeah. 1958, you're right. Uh, he picked up something and exploded in his face and and then he moved to Canada he got a degree he, he became a 
a literature professor. He finished his PhD. He raised a family, and he he published many poems. An extraordinary man. I remember when I sent him the script, he said to me, my boy, this is fantastic. I remember his voice, send it, send it, send it. So I sent it as a mass mailing and somebody picked it up. And then the rest is history. Before we go to the present, I've been in Montreal. I've spent time in Montreal. I've been in Ottawa. I've been in taxis in major Canadian cities. There's always Lebanese taxi drivers. Yeah. And there's many Lebanese passengers. Yeah. When you're a taxi driver in Montreal, in that window of time, yeah. were a lot of the passengers, in a way, feeding into the story? Was there any motivation? In Carnival. In Carnival. Yeah. yeah. That's about my taxi days. But that's not a Lebanese story. That's Latin. Not all my books are about Lebanon. Mm. Okay. I have two books about Lebanon. Yeah. The rest, bit of um, uh, going back to certain event, childhood, uh, but not all my books about Lebanon. So the taxi rides don't serve as an inspiration for De Niro's game. No. How does the thought process begin? Are you literally it's recommendation from one woman? Yeah. Go right, and you do it. Yeah. So that's I, all it took. Yeah. I should, uh, you know, people tell me to do things all the time, and I. Yeah, she you told me to quit diet Pepsi. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, uh, I told you to quit cigarello. Uh, yeah, I'm a writer. Right? I, need, I need my persona. You know, you're right. Um, I'm trying to yeah. lose weight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What else are we gonna talk about? Well, let now me... they all have my memoir. Well, <laughs> orally told. <laughs> yeah. I. A few years later, Cockroach is written. I won't go too deep into that, but if anyone has read De Niro's Game and not read Cockroach, you should, because it's the, really it's the other end of what is, I think, in essence, the tragedy of Kafka, written by you, about somebody losing themselves, losing their mind in Montreal, in the slums of Montreal. It's in... It's a fantastic work. You write Carnival, based on those taxi driving years, not about Lebanon per se. Uh, I meet you when Beirut Hellfire Society is published. Mm -hmm. I think it was within weeks of its initial release that I actually stumbled into you. I want to go just a little bit into Beirut Hellfire Society as someone, and we said it earlier, an outcast. I'm using this word in a complimentary, complimentary way. I'm flattered. Thank you. I accept it. Somebody that I relate to but never feels at home anywhere. Yeah. Whether you're burying the dead, whether you're watching your father get killed by a bomb, or the dog, that poor dog that suffers the same fate as every human in Beirut Hellfire Society, I relate to that book. You're picking up on Lebanon again in 2018, 19. Mm. And some time has passed since De Niro's game. Mm. And it's not, I think, as it's not nearly as playful as De Niro's game. Mm. It's a traumatic story of hell. 
I think there's a lot of humor, but oh, that's... Thank you for saying that, that's, because... That's different. That's where I wanted to get into what you're... How you use humor hmm. to play with the Lebanese tragedy. Hmm. Hmm. Your humor is exquisitely dark. Hmm. And I hope I remember this right. In an interview, not, not that long ago, actually, you mentioned that religious texts are lacking humor. Yes, they do. They, there's no jokes in the Bible. Well, especially, especially the Abrahamic text. Exactly. Monotheism and stand-up comedy don't really go well together. Mm. Um, no, we're austere. Very austere. Yeah, very austere. The haunting images are always interrupted by dark humor in Beirut Hellfire Society. But you're not, you're not here. You're abroad. Yeah. And you're becoming a well-known writer for other terrain too. So is it simply that you're watching a country that you grew up in die? Hmm. Is it people you know that are passing away? Where does Beirut Hellfire Society, its inception, where does it come from? I would, well, to start with, I think uh, I wrote it for the next generation. I think once you take a very serious subject and you inject fant the fantastical in it and, and the humor in it, as if you're signaling that enough, we had enough of that. <laughs> I think now we should give the baton to the new generation and they should deal with other issues. We wrote about the war. Uh, I think the new generation who's writing in Lebanon should read us for sure, uh, will be flattered, but they also, they also should kill us. Kill they us. They should surpass us and kill us. Learn from us and start writing about your own stories, about corruption, about the absurdity of Beirut, about the inter, um, intersectionality between all these communities uh, I don't know write about things let's stop writing about that era write about the residue of that era or where you you know are experiencing because write about something else I don't know write about sex about love write something I think the Elias Khoury all of us the Rashid al-Daif, you know, I, I think we did our job. We preserved something for you. I think we all wrote well with all our heart. And it's time for us to not retire. We're still writing because we want to write. But I think someone else should take um, our place in on that particular topic. <laughs> um, and I hope this will operate as some kind of transition. Um, it is about death. And I'm going to say something very controversial that might seem not popular and that might seem sectarian, but it's not. Um, it is also about um, the, the ending of Christian communities in the Middle East. It is something that we have to talk about, whether you acknowledge it or not. And this is not to put blame, but it's the ending of a, of a community. 
million Iraqis disappeared, Syrians disappeared. Uh, I'm against bringing this to political gains. It's a mourning. Um, but at the same time, there's an acceptance. You have to accept ephemerality. You have to accept the transition. That's how life works. You have to integrate. Uh, and, and, and whoever is coming will become you and you will become them. That's how life is. You, um, I think it's a philosophical, maybe even uh, um, maybe theological question. Or, But you know what? I'm not the only one. I have a surprise for you. I talked to Sharif Mejdalani on that particular topic. I talked to Rashid Al-Daif. I talked to, uh, um, I asked Huda Barakat. I, I talked to uh, Dwayhi before his departure. Everyone wrote a book about that topic independently. There is a mourning. It's not to blame. It's not that have relation with the war. It's not nationalism, but it's a culture that is, it's gone. And you cannot talk about this. You're automatically accused of nationalism. You're, autom you're automatically accused of being uh, of certain political. No, it's a philosophical thing. And they all approached it within a philosophical. No one is blaming anyone. It's a philosophical question that is internal. Uh, it's very internal. Um, and it's kept within. Oh. Allow me, and I don't think I'm. I'm not. I don't consider myself a. You know, I. I, I am. I'm not religious, but there are cultural traits, there are cultural histories that remain, and uh, and I accept it personally. Uh, I'm not gonna carry weapons. I'm not. Gonna, you know, um, things continue in the diaspora. You know, things continue e elsewhere. Mm. Um, I mean, is there a poor, pure cultures? It does not exist. It's a series of collision and, and fusion. And that's the way of the world. Allow me to wrap up the discussion with a thought. And we can take as much, you can say as much as you'd like. I know this may be more sensitive than other things we've talked about. So anything you want removed can be removed from the podcast. I won't remove anything. I don't give a fuck. In that case, let me let me go to the good stuff. <laughs> what you're suggesting, not what you're suggesting, what you're describing, I think is a hundred percent reality. Uh, I'll only add to that, and it's kind of a coincidence. On Saturday. I'm moderating a debate between two intellectuals, sorry for this word, they think of themselves as, I think, one thinks of himself, well, how can I be diplomatic? One is Ottoman, he's a cosmopolitan, 
Ottoman scholar or Ottoman he's, he's he Somehow, or? I think he got into a time capsule from the 1800s and eventually ended up in Ras Beirut. Oh, he's from Turkey? No, no, no. He's, he's Lebanese. He's Lebanese. His name is Nadim Shahadi. He's an academic, a Chatham House uh, lectured at Tufts, directed LAU in New York. He's been, he, he writes regularly in Arab news. Um, I would say maybe semi-retired today. I don't know exa his exact age, probably late 60s. But anyway, he defends the word cosmopolitan and cosmopolitanism, I think, is what he's advocating to protect. For? Advocating for? To protect ah. from extinction. Cosmopolitanism, so, yes. Right, so that may be, I think he would describe it as Levantine cosmopolitanism that's been on the decline for the better part of the 20th century mm. and is finally hitting Beirut hard. Mm. So that's his take, meaning the communities that sought refuge here in the 20th century are leaving. The thinkers that flocked to Beirut in the 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s, they no longer flock here. Maybe they... Well, they're old. <laughs> they're I mean, old, or if they're... this The cultural expression... Oh, do you mean the contemporary? Yes, okay. Yeah, so they go to Dubai today. They don't yeah, come right, here. Right. Uh, the economy that once was celebrated in the region, a banking sector that expanded in the 50s and 60s, is dead. Yeah. Um, and in that story, there's also elements, which he refers to as cosmopolitanism, a diversity of languages of communal expression, of sects, of everything. Multi-layered multi identity, he best describes as Ross Beirut, which is also on the decline there too. Mm. That's one side. The other side is a self-proclaimed federalist. His name is Hisham Bou Nassif. Yeah, I, he invited me. I, I watch your shows. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm a fan. Thank you. Um, fan, um, mutual fan. Yeah, thank you. I, I, I appreciate what you're doing. I think uh, I, I think these are important. We need more of those to min maintain some of that cosmopolitanism. Okay, go ahead. But I, I like talking to him, not necessarily because I subscribe to anything that he's saying, but he's an academic, a PhD scholar, lived in, I think, Indiana, for a long time, came back to Beirut and is now on TV all the time. I talk to him, others talk to him. He talks about federalism, but I think it's okay to suggest that, not to suggest that he has said it himself. If federalism doesn't work, partition. Now that's the, if you could look at it as two roads, a divergence, one is protecting something that's on the decline. One is trying to save something from extinction. And the way you talked about it right now, it seems like that's the middle ground, meaning it's a fait accompli. The next generation has their own tale. I see your expression as acknowledging the end, whether it's cosmopolitan or Christian comfort. I think the end towards, I think towards um, 
the Beirut story. Yeah. Okay. They go ahead. To Beirut, but what Beirut represents, what Beirut represented for a very long time, even post civil war. This is where I want to get into the personal. I've heard you refer to autonomy, and I think earlier in the discussion you talked about it in an eloquent way. There's no need to judge any community. You defended accusations against, in your words, uh, Maronite Christians for being something, whether they're nationalist or not. There's accusations towards all communities. All communities. I, I you know, I'm not championing any. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So that in that world, has anything in your experience abroad pushed you to maybe think about a way for that community to not perish? It doesn't have to be Canada's mode of governance. They have their own way of autonomy. They have their own dual that's language. A, that's a political question. That's a political question. That's... Uh, um, it's not the only community is leaving. You know, people are leaving from all communities. But... Uh, um, I, I don't think there's any way to, you know, stop that. Uh, exodus now uh, but that's part of the characteristic of this community since the 1800 that community has been leaving you know uh, it's probably the earliest communities in the Arab world who went to the West we mm. all know yeah and that's part of what that community is it's a community that is migrating for various reasons Mm. Um, like I said, if the community perishes, I um, on in a philosophical way, no, I'll accept it. It's more. I, it's more. You experienced assimilation. I, I, won't, I won't go into uh, political details and political uh, arguments. How to stop uh, the perishment? Mm. or the perishing of this community. Um, I looked a little bit about federalism. I I think what should happen, uh, I think we really should work on creating some kind of communality. I think the world has changed. Uh, the new generation, they're all, the media changed, the, the, the technology changed. I think everyone is exposed to that kind of modernity mm. that was the thing about uh, um, I think the thing about what what the Christian community worries most about is to maintain certain modernity uh, certain modernity that was established with the context of the with the West, it's not a colonial thing. It, there is a progression. There is continuity. The first school, the, the the contact with the West was when the West was the Enlightenment was emerging. Technological advancement was emerging. It's not a coincidence that the first Gutenberg mm -hmm. print was here, yep. brought by the monks, uh, while the Ottoman Empire, of course, refused it, categorically refused it. 
for theological reasons. So that that continuity with that Western modernity was beneficial for that community. And in all fairness, uh, it was spread all over. It wasn't just the particularity of that community. Mm. It was it was diffused, whether we like it or not. It was diffused. The first Quran was printed on that Gutenberg press mm. that was in the monastery, mm. um, and and for them it was. They didn't want to go the Ottoman way, where you know. Uh, these kind of technological adma- advancement. I might be wrong. Um, maybe the guy, the Othman, but, uh, but for them it was beneficial. And, and whether we like it or not, that contact, that technological advancement, that um, theological affiliation, all this contact uh, became part of us all. And it was more accentuated, like Samir Qasir says in his book in Beirut, by the missionaries mm. who came. Well, I will defer with Samir Kami. That's a colonial project. Mm. The missionaries were a colonial project. The Jesuits and the Protestant missionaries. Yeah, that was, but mostly, pro- yeah. Uh, and that was a colonial project. But that contact with, uh, it, it was beneficial, it was there. Um, that categorical refusal of anything that is Western, uh, I find is a bit schizophrenic, really. Uh, whether we like it or what. I mean, technology defines us. You know, we're, we're exposed to many things culturally, etc. So I, I don't think we are who we think we are any longer. Um, There's three unique cities you've called home. The one that we're, we've been talking about tonight, New York, which I don't think really has any of that, and that it's a forced assimilation. The way you talked about it, it seems so natural, but it's unique to New York. A Jamaican, a Hasidic Jew, a Lebanese Jew, uh, Mexican roommates, and you're getting beaten up by an African-American woman. And all of that is happening in one day, let's say. That's a typical New York experience. That's assimilation. On the other end is Montreal, which is, I think, one of autonomy and protection. And it's visible in Montreal even today. There is a francophone identity that Mm. is preserved or given its breathing space. Mm. I think Beirut sort of has a bit of both in that it's not... We speak so many languages here. None is given exclusivity. Right. We're polyglot. Yes. Yeah. And we also have the chaos of New York, which provides some liberty too and freedom. And I thought maybe you saw something there and applying that to what you're describing is fact that there is one community that doesn't feel at home. There's one what? There's one community today that feels less at home than ever. Who? What community? Well, I, 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 would, I would say this is a non-Christian. I think the Christians of Lebanon, I share your bleakest sentiment. They're joining the region's Christians in a massive decline. I think Lebanon... Demographic decline, yes. Demographic decline, cultural output decline, 
uh, footprint on Lebanon in general decline and the tendency towards dictatorship in this country? Yes. I think that's part of it too. Dictatorship and theocracy. Theocracy. Oh, that, that we have a strong, strong theocratic element in this. This is the elephant in the room that nobody wants to address. We talk about sectarianism, but sectarianism is not theo- it's not religiosity. What is fueling this sectarianism? Nobody wants to. We talk about it as if it's some kind of political party or, or a scout or something. But what is at the base of this? There's... I think there's a theological discussion that should be also parallel to this refusal of sectarianism. Mm. And I think we should, we should all um, decide what kind of country we want. We are an existentialist. Uh, we, we have to decide, we have to talk what kind of new Lebanon we want. And I think we have to, when we do this, we have to keep, to keep all politicians out. I think that's a discussion that should be done by academics, poets, people from the street. We have to decide what kind of Lebanon we want. Um, what is it we want? And uh, uh, We want a theocracy. We want to maintain this kind of troika um, between religiosity, tradition and authority. There is, and, and I, in my opinion, the glue to this kind of power is religion. It's dictating too many things on, on us. You know, I mean, really, you, you really want to go and, and, and make the LGBT community in this place as a scapegoat for your inadequacies, for your, for your failures, for your failed morality, for your it's hegemony it's uh you know any any power that that single out small passive um non-military group to cover your your inadequacies and your your corruption is fascism that's what the fascists did you derivate your violence, you concentrate your violence into scapegoating a community, whether gypsies or whatever, Jews. And uh, it, it was the same mechanism. Really? I mean, really, you were, were not really. What are they bothering you? Did they steal your, ba- your money in your bank? Did they. I mean, that's absurd. And that's. That came from, from a theocratic streak of this country. That came from religion. We're a religious, we're a religious place. We're still a conservative place. And we have to deal with our theocracies. What do we want? We want a theocracy? Fine. Let's do a theocracy. We want dictatorship? Fine. Let's, let's discuss it. But um, when I f- anyway. When I first read Beirut Hellfire Society, yeah. uh, what I read was the morning of someone like you, meaning a free thinker who could survive the storm and come out as a writer. And the morning of what Beirut used to pull in, not just in the country, but throughout the region, uh, this freedom 
this really unique exercise for the region and what democracy should look like and what it should bring. That's what I read in morning that chapter of history. Yeah. I mean, ideally, yeah. Yeah. And uh, we can we can build maybe ideally a social democrat state. I don't have a democratic state, but I, I don't know if it's going to happen. So you know. you're very kind to let me push you into the political, philosophical uh, angle of yeah, any discussion. Late. I got in trouble already. It's no, no, no. That was the first time I heard you talk about this subject, which is an honor f- to let me ask you. It's the stuff I always wanted to ask you years and years ago. Uh, where there's going to be a small break. There'll yeah. be time for Q&A. What I want to say is that picking up this book years and years ago and pushing myself onto you in New York, that's my ashtray moment. (laughs) Five years later, I'm sitting with you talking about outcasts in the bubble and alias. I can't think of a better way to spend a Wednesday evening. So on my behalf of William and the audience, thank you, Rabbi Hajj. Thank you. Let's take a 10-minute break and then Q&A. Thank thank you. Let's make the Q&A fun. Rabbi Hajj is still with us past the two-hour allotted time. I don't know if William's still here. He Maybe he went to bed. <laughs> oh, he's at the wine bar. Hi, Adonis. Kifik. <laughs> of course, Adonis. Where's your phone? Don't lose it again. Everyone left. So the audience, I think this is actually quite fun. Um, one, two... Three former guests on the podcast are sitting here. Yeah. Zena. Zena Saab. Check out her book. It's coming out in August. Rawi is the forward writer. Great effort. Congratulations, Zena. I think I think we need more books like that. So we have Zena Saab. We have Sara Yassin right in the middle. Uh, she joined the podcast. Actually, she was an audience member last week as well. But we spoke, I guess, over a year ago about politics and urban planning. We have Camille, 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 not Camille, Camille. <laughs> you guys fixed it. Camille Hamoun sitting at the bar. We recorded last week. So if anyone hasn't written his work, check him out. And of course, William, who just come, came out of the wine bar. <laughs> uh, I'm going to put you on MTV podcast in September. <laughs> Not here. It wouldn't make sense. So, it's a nice, friendly crowd. Let's get to know Rawi as much as we can with limited time. Whoever has a question up front, please let me know. Melik, who saved the day with a poet reference during the podcast. 
And can you just introduce yourself, what you yeah, do? Yeah, of course, yeah. of course. Uh, hi, thank you very much for the lecture. Um, was it a lecture? Uh, for the interview, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I do not lecture. You're right. I'm not a linguist, the way you are. Um, so my name is Malik Abinader. I'm an interpreter and a translator. Um, so thank you very much for whatever happened in these past two hours. Um, I have a very simple question. Listening to you talk about um, those miscellaneous events, like the mafia wedding, uh, the instance where you drew uh, like the pool stick, uh, but also all these random events that you covered, like that you photographed with your camera. Uh, for some reason, one thing came to mind, gonzo, like gonzo journalism, the gonzo movement. And when you think of the gonzo movement, the first name that comes up is Hunter Thompson, the, the journalist who covered the Hells Angels, and then he went to Hawaii and he wrote his famous rum diary and so on. Uh, but I also thought uh, of another journalist, a crazy journalist who actually was Norwegian. His name is uh, Odd Karsten Tveit. And I think he was the first press person uh, to enter the Sabra and Shatila camp uh, right after the massacre. And he literally filmed what he saw as he was shouting and screaming. And there was still some sporadic gunfire uh, going on. So the question is very simple. Um, from what you were saying, like the mafia weddings and everything, and even maybe... I don't know if I can call it a rebellious attitude or an anti-conformistic attitude that you have, whatever it is. Uh, have you ever considered uh, gonzo journalism, even through photography or literature? Why would I do that? Uh, I don't know. It's just a personal question. No, I know. No, I don't. No, I'm a novelist. I'm a novelist. Yeah. And... Uh, but I mean, like Hunter Thompson was also a photographer. That's why I'm asking the question. Yeah, um, I, I have no influence with that. With uh, I never read him. I I don't know. I never read him. Um, frankly, I have no interest. Yeah, sorry. Uh, it's okay. Thank you very much. Any other questions? Well, let me ask you a silly question, Ravi. Um, before recording, I sat down and I got my calculator from my phone. I, is that coming? I'll wait for it to pass. Silly question, I divided 10,000 by 15 and I got 666 <laughs> brilliant is that why you chose 10,000 mm, no I don't know why I chose 10,000 I think it's um, uh, I, I think it's an I was I was reading I think the Bible for the first time I think there's uh, in the Mazamir or something Huh. I'm an atheist who's interested in, in theology. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that, that it's, I used it like an incantation, uh, maybe a reference to prayers, religiosities, mm. etc. Um, 
Yeah, I think I think that's what it came from. Uh, I, I think where it came from. Yeah, it's repetitiveness. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's 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 all. Yeah, well, thank you. Great question, but I I think subconsciously that's where it came from. Yeah. Let's see. Sam, oh, who? Samer? Well, Sam? the only... No. no. Well, I was just going to say that uh, on the comment that uh, an atheist interested in theology, it, it, you have to understand what you want to reject first, right? So... I have to understand... Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, that's true. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, hi, good evening. I have so many questions. About You're a lot too. A lot of things that you spoke about, uh, but I'll start with one um, about discipline as a writer. As mm. someone who uh, who writes, who, uh, I struggle with discipline and commitment because I do it on the side. Um, so I was wondering. Uh, Roni said that for the Nero's games, you did I get it correctly? You kind of isolated yourself for a month and were very disciplined. And then you mentioned that uh, it began as a short story. So maybe you could share a bit about the process, how this short story morphed into a book uh, and about your discipline as a writer, if you have if you have one. I know other writers who don't have this discipline who write, who can write at any time, no matter what had, ha has happened in, in their day. Mm. I know that I struggle with that. Mm. Um, I, I write in bursts. So when I'm writing, I, I take time. I'm, usually I go to a place where it could be a city that I know no one, I rent a room and I stay there for, for a month or two and I write every day. I, I write and burst. Actually, I write all my book, uh, books uh, very fast. The first draft is very, very fast. Um, it's, um, it's intense. I drink a lot of coffee and I sit and I write and then I distance myself from it for a while, maybe a few months even, and I come back to it. I revise or do some rewriting. I'm not a disciplined writer. I'm a, um, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, bit of a bipolar writer. <laughs> yeah. William. Yeah. Um, you spoke about the kind of the years in New York and, and the rage that you felt and the kind of the trauma that you'd been through. Um, has writing dissipated that? Has it been cathartic or is it an exercise in futility? I, I, can you repeat that? I, I think that when, you, when you talk about leaving here and you talk about the rage that you felt and the fearlessness, has, has writing kind of dissipated that? Has it, has it been cathartic or has it been an exercise in futility? Oh. It's been cathartic. Um, um, yeah, I think all writing are cathartic. I mean, uh, yeah. Um, 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 yeah, my relation... 
I don't know what it is. You know, I'm one of those writers who are, I feel like a different person when I'm writing. So it's um, it's assuming embodying another another personality, another self. Actually, it's basically another self. Mm -hmm. When I read my writing, I don't recognize myself. I'm one of those writers who is always surprised who wrote this. Uh, I feel like I don't. Yeah. Um, it's it's. I think writing is is the capacity to tap in in a certain zone. Um, to use a religious maybe adjective is writing uh, is almost transcendental. Maybe there's something uh, you know physical about it. How to translate what you think into a paper or uh, I think. In between what you think and and actually putting on a paper, that particular distance of time um, is probably maybe a gift. I think everyone is a writer, but how to translate that thought, that story into something else could be a skill. I don't know. It's a mystery. Yeah, you know, I think talent is a mystery. I don't. I. I don't. I don't know what it is. There's it, it's so many factors that yeah. Is the rage still there? Hmm? Is the still there? I can't hear him raise. The, the rage is still here. Oh, the rage, emotions. Yeah, I don't hope I can come. Uh, yeah, I'm emotional writer. I think when when I write, I use all my emotions from transgression to romantic thoughts. I think the whole spectrum is there. I, yeah, I'm not hesitant writer. There are writers who are hesitant. I pity academics because they think too much. Uh, academics are very hesitant and they usually, they make horrible writers, novelists. Uh, though more and more we see uh, some kind of, uh, uh, yeah, we see more, <laughs> I mean, I'm getting myself in trouble, but see more academics want to be writers and artists. Uh, academics, I think they're funny uh, in that sense. Uh, they all want to be novelists, but they censor themselves periodically. And I think it's getting worse with uh, this climate of, you know, many things that's happening. They write to a certain agenda. It's the worst thing you can do. I don't know. Some academics are great writers. They have great readership because that's what the readership demands. Uh, they write like as if they're writing some kind of uh, thesis. But I, um, there are other kind of writers who are, I think, people who live the experiences and they can translate and deform and inject these experiences into a novel. I'm not a good nonfiction writer. Uh, I can only write fiction, so I don't have that systematic thought writing. Yeah. Okay. Rabbi, I've heard you mention that success is a curse for a writer. Mm, could be, yeah. Could be a curse. And one way you've avoided that curse 
is by staying angry. <laughs> that kind of feeds into the question asked earlier, but that anger, I'm trying to think back to everything we spoke about tonight. Is there a fire that you took from this country that never goes out? Yes, probably there. And, and, and since nothing is resolved, that fire kind of comes back. Mm. Yeah, I care about this place. Yeah. I think this place um, is unique. In the region, it's unique. Uh, it's unique in many ways. And I think the assault in this place, it's because it's unique. Um, um, there's something very schizophrenic in the region, how they portray Lebanese. They're fascinated by us because we're vocal. We had wars, but we were never crushed by a despot or by a, a total uh, dictatorship. Uh, and that's the attraction and the repulsion of Lebanon in the region. And that's what I sense. Uh, they like our liberty. They like the way we express ourselves. They're fascinated how you know, um, expressive we are about our things. And that comes from that sense of freedom that we never experienced this crushing, um, you know, dictatorship. And, and I think there's an attempt uh, to make this place like the rest of this, uh, rest of the region. Um, um, and that saddened me. And I think that's the most valuable thing about this place. Um, yeah. And I think this place, everyone tried to use it for some certain project or not. It's a contested place. And it's hard to be uh, uh, a small country in a region with many conflicts. I feel like we're like Poland. Mm. where it's crushed between Stalinism and fascism. Mm. And since it's, it was a weak state, everyone laid claim on it. That's why I think we should, you know, um, we should unite. We should have some pride. We should have, you know, I'm, I'm not being nationalist, but if we want this place um, to be something, I think we should, we should, uh, we should find an internal solution it's not going to come from those politicians. They're all corrupt. They're all agents. I think it should come from the new generation, from this. I believe in culture. I believe in culture as a resistance. Um, even superficially, I, you know, when I see my nephew or my niece or um, going getting drunk and having rave parties, I consider this also resistance. Uh, we have to maintain. I mean, uh, we still have it. The fact that I'm sitting here with you and we're not, you know, not 10 mukhabarat are here to, to is only still, about, it, I think it, it's a form of resistance. only tonight. <laughs> the usual. Um, I mean, it, it, it's still something. It's still unique. 
And uh, and for me, me and you is Lebanon. This is us here. And the new generation should be more I mean, vocal about these things. Those old farts old fart should go. I mean, they're anti-intellectuals. I can tell you stories about my experience in the diaspora. And my experience with the diplomatic corps, the Lebanese diplomatic corps. I um, <laughs> can't. Terrible. I've been to 30 countries. Um, I was invited everywhere from Chile all the way to north of China. I'm translated in 30 languages and everybody invited me. Not once I saw a dip somebody from the diplomatic corps come to my event or Rabia Alamuddin event or uh, when, uh, you know, like even Liban you know, Lebanese, when uh, um, um, uh, like Iman Hamaidan or, 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 or uh, you know, local Lebanese go elsewhere. You don't see one person from diplomatic corps. I witnessed embassies from Sri Lanka opening their door, giving, you know, hosting their writers, hosting their artists, uh, introducing everyone, doing cocktails, taking pride in the culture. Not one fucking diplomatic person came to any of our events. They're anti-intellectual little container uh, merchants. That's what they are. Um, and 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 I, I remember once I was invited to Mexico. They do in Guadalajara the biggest the biggest fair, book fair in the world. I mean, it's huge. They bring buses, school buses, you know. And being a writer in Mexico is something, you know. It's like a matador. He comes in, everybody applauds, you know, they, you know, it's reverence. And then they said to me, there's this, high, there's this school in a small village outside of Mexico City. Uh, they read your book, they like your book, they read De Niro's game, and they want to invite you to the school. I said, fine. It's like safari. I go, no, I'm, I don't know where I'm going, in jungle. And and I and I arrive at village, there's nothing. There's a Coca-Cola fridge and a school, small school. And I arrived there, poor villagers. They made a, um, like an ark. Uh, mm. And they had the Lebanese flag. I cried like a baby. I cried like a baby. It's like you come here, it's just fucking some bunch of... One time a diplomat came uh, to an event. It was me and Rabia Alamuddin doing an event. I think Rabia was there. And uh, he comes, I told me, uh, the consul is here, or whatever the fuck he is, whatever. Uh, so I, I went to meet him and I said, hello, welcome, you know. That was his opening thing. And then he started looking over my shoulder, right? Looking at, at the first seats in the events. And he said to me, where should we sit? I said, sit wherever the fuck you want. And I left. He turned and left because he wants to sit in the front. That's how meek they are. 
they're a bunch of meek people. Any event in the community, in the diaspora, they have three big chairs, the clergy, and then some kind of ambassador, whatever the fuck they are. They're meek. They, and then someone organized, um, they go asking money from the diaspora, right? And they have this conference here. They bring all these business people talking about their business success. Um, one Kamanja plane, there was not, not one nigh. They, they, you know, you do a conference about your culture and all these people set, stating how much money they made and a little bit about Tabuli, grandmother Tabuli, folkloric stuff. And I invited... This, not even like a piano, not even like a, you know, Fairuz song, not even like a, they, they're dry, they're, you know, and, and that is going to make a backlash because you can't, you can't treat the diaspora as a cow, you know, a cashing cow. It was so obvious that they, you know, inviting all businessmen, is that what, all what we are? Is that all that, that's what represented, uh, represents this culture? We have so many great artists in the, you know, everywhere. And, and that's what we came down to is, is inviting a few businessmen to talk about their financial success. We, we didn't, it, the government didn't integrate our culture into governance. And that's why we don't have an identity. That's why we have, we're confused about identity. And that's why maybe we replaced our sectarian identity with our cultural identity. There was neglect. I think that nuance between sectarian and culture needs to be explored more because they often get confused for each other. And I think that's an angle I've tried to explore as much as I can. Removing the emotions that come with certain words and honestly celebrating the good stuff, not being shy that all the great things that you remember, and I think they, the fire might be there, but there's also, there's something that you're mourning all the time, which is the loss of a Lebanon that meant something to you. That has to be held up. And if that's the message to the next generation, that's the right message. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I think we should, we should emphasize events like this culture and uh, still i see exhibitions everywhere i see regardless of anyway i um promised myself not to exercise my rage on stage okay uh, let me quote from beirut hellfire society what a naive species we are the stories we die for someday no one will want to tell them anymore no one will be left to tell them think you're doing that. I'm trying to do that. That is the right message to send. I don't really care for diplomats showing <laughs> up either. at any event. Believe me. So I will leave time for maybe one more question. Adonis. Um, hi. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of questions actually. You talked about a lot of stuff even right now in the last 10 minutes that I would love to uh, ask you about. But um, 
personally, I feel like whatever the diplomats are or are not doing in um, in these countries. I, I, no, no, no. I, I, I'm, I'm with you on it. I, I, I've I don't heard care about the diplomats. I, mean, I was. It's a reference to culture. How important yes, it, is, no, it is. How we neglected it. Yes, yeah. it's the identity itself as well, which is a problem, which is a big problem. So basically, but I do feel that it comes also. It stems from the fact that as Lebanese, we are very. We have a very kind of an autoimmune disease of wanting to destroy whatever works or whatever kind of tries to shine or, you know, and we have it even here, even internally. I've never left Lebanon. I've always lived here. Um, so that's for a fact. About the Mukhabarat part, I'm not sure if you were, um, um, if there were uh, none here. <laughs> it, was, it was funny. Oh, we saw some stuff happening in the background. You guys couldn't see it. So, um, oh, really? That, that was another, another back scene. Oh, well. So, yeah. But, uh, Viyakak, which is like the symbolic, you know, thing. I, I, I don't see Viyakak anymore since 2005, but here I saw one today. Um, uh, just my question is um, it has to do more with what you talked about about Lebanon and thank you for not being very politically correct because um, we're kind of fed up with that yeah. uh, at least for me personally and yeah. for addressing the elephant in the room and for talking about whichever whatever you talked about but um, you, talk, you also said something about communalities and the fact that we need to look for those. Is, uh, the Nero's Game is one of my favorite books and I haven't read Beirut Hellfire Society yet. Um, but I'm thinking, is, it, is the civil war one of these elements that might be, uh, might be a good start for us to, uh, you know, start talking about and treat. Although I know that a lot of people say we've done a lot or made a lot of movies and it's so boring by now that we talk a lot about it. But I also feel it's a way to just ignore it and just like swipe it under the rug, you know, and mm. uh, could it be one of those elements maybe? Swipe the civil war under the rug? No, talking about it, P pulling it out of, uh, of, out, out of the rug actually. And just to talk about it as a starting point of this communalities oh, to find something in so. common. I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. It's critical. It's critical because everyone has his narrative and his version. But in order to overcome that, we kind of like need to throw it out there, no? Throw... Throw our versions out there, each and every side. No? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. I think... Uh, the more the merrier uh, but i but i uh, i i think um, i think there are other problems you know the post-civil war now that there are different problems uh, they're related but they're not but it's not the actual war but I mean, they scare us with the same elements apparently i wasn't i was born in the and civil i think war, the new generation should write about that it's their experience we it's don't their have lives, it. it's their concerns. I think they should write about that or make movies. Yeah. Sorry, I, maybe I didn't understand what you were saying, but yeah. Okay. Guys, maybe time for just one more question in case anyone still has one. I wasn't sure if I saw a hand earlier. No one. Okay. Okay, well.
There we go. Let's go get drunk. Oh, hold on, Ravi. Before before we get drunk, wait. Hold on. To the <laughs> yes. Ravi, have you heard of the wine bar? It's just behind that door. Oh yeah, well, I've, I've seen bottles, bottles there. Yeah. Air conditioned as well. Oh really? Is there a wine bar there? No, uh, just behind that magical door. Oh. Those books lead you to wine. Uh, a cellar. Alias keep me surprised. Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Full of surprises. Allow me to entertain you in a cringy way. I'll try. 10,000 bombs had landed, and I was waiting for George. 10,000 bombs had landed on Beirut, that crowded city, and I was lying on a blue sofa covered with white sheets to protect it from dust and dirty feet. It is time to leave, I was thinking to myself. My mother's radio was on. It had been on since the start of the war. A radio with Rayovac batteries that lasted 10,000 years. The battery is dying. <laughs> I've spent the better part of 20 years, maybe it's now 10,000 people, walked the city with me. More have listened to me talk about the city. It's crowded, it's ugly, it's unpleasant, it's a nightmare. And in that terrible tragedy, storytellers bring out the best in us. You're preserving and holding on to something I cherish deeply. It's your Lebanon, and it's mine. Yeah. And I really mean that. There's no better way to celebrate all this with a storyteller like you. So whoever has not picked up the Nero's game, pick it up. Beirut Hellfire Society, it's being sold here at Alias as well. Thank you. Ravi Hajj. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Ravi Haj's latest book is Stray Dogs. It's not being distributed here yet, but it will be eventually. Um, Ravi is not so visible on social media. You have to be an exclusive club to have him on Instagram. But you can obviously check out his writing online. It's the Beirut Banyan. On Saturday, for anyone who doesn't have weekend plans, go to Hamdoun, to Iris Domain, because the Civil War is going to start again <laughs> by two academics. <laughs> <laughs> who can't stand each other. I'm being silly. Uh, if you don't have plans this weekend, there's a live episode, thanks to Samir and Rian as well. We'll be in Hamdoun. It's online. You can check it out. And um, next Wednesday is a social media figure. His name is Georges Werdini. He'll be sitting here. The following week is the German ambassador to Lebanon, Andreas Kindle. He's leaving the country. One of his last things he'll do is sit with us and talk about his experience here. Then I'm taking a break. For the first time in five years, I'm taking a break. Oh, where are you going? I'm going away from my phone, <laughs> a bit isolation, and I'm going to try to do other things, exactly. And no diet Pepsi. <laughs> so, anyway. Guys, this was a treat for me, Ravi. Thank you. Thanks for listening and watching, and a friendly reminder to support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan.